Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. The following episode contains explicit language. I'm Alan Montecilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Race is central to our conversations about criminal justice in America. But once you actually enter the criminal courtroom, race is a mostly silent character. That's because people accused of crimes haven't been able to raise claims of racial bias in the justice system to defend themselves. But that has changed, thanks to a new groundbreaking state law. This is groundbreaking and historic. The type of information that we've been able to present through our expert witnesses is not something that has been traditionally allowed to be brought into criminal courts. This law is called the Racial Justice Act, the first of its kind in the nation. And now we're seeing it affect real people's lives, including in one high-profile case in Contra Costa County. It feels like for the first time, the court system is talking in a real open and honest way about its racist legacy. Today, I speak with KQED's Annalise Finney about the Racial Justice Act and how it changed the course of one trial in Antioch. The Racial Justice Act is a 2020 California law that essentially prohibits the government from seeking a conviction on the basis of race, ethnicity, or national origin. What it did that's pretty groundbreaking is it created a way for people who are accused of crimes to challenge the charges against them in court. So in the process of their trial and as the case moves towards trial, they can ask the judge to throw out portions of the charges against them if they can prove that racism was involved in either their arrest or the way they were charged. How radical of a change is that from the way the criminal court system has normally functioned? That's a huge change. I mean, public defenders and people of color, Black people in particular, have been calling out racism in the justice system for decades. 
In the U.S., court cases have often been this very high-profile case in which racism in America is on display. Like, for example, if you think about the Central Park Five case, if you think about the O.J. Simpson case, race was a huge part of these cases, but it wasn't really an actor that had the ability to speak. There was no way to raise racism in criminal court cases. So it didn't really get raised and people were convicted and sent to prison, even when racism may have played a part in how they ended up on trial in the first place. How many people could this law affect? This could affect tens of thousands of people. One estimate is that three quarters of people who are currently in California state prisons could have viable Racial Justice Act claims. And that's about 90,000 people. So the Racial Justice Act passed in 2020. Why are we talking about this law now? So when this law was approved, there was still a fair amount to be figured out. And a lot of that figuring out is going to happen later as the law is put into practice and the court responds to it in different ways. Over the last year, we've begun to see a lot of these test cases, and one in particular in Antioch caught my attention and has made some big changes in understanding how this law is going to work in California. Well, let's dive into this murder case in Contra Costa County. Where does this story begin? On March 9th in 2021, the police allege that four men shot a car 40 times in a drive-by shooting on a residential street in Antioch. One young man, Arnold Marcel Hawkins, who was 22 at the time, was killed and another man was seriously injured. Less than a month later, the police arrested four young men from all over Northern California, all of whom were black, and the police say that the shooting was the product of a feud between two East Bay gangs. The four young men who were arrested include Eric Windham, Terion Pugh, Trent Allen, and Keishon McGee. Their arrest was the product of a coalition of a lot of East Bay law enforcement working together. And when they make this arrest, they say essentially this is a big win for cutting down on gun violence and particularly gang-fueled gun violence in the East Bay. And what were these four men initially charged with? The top charges are murder and attempted murder, and both of those carry a series of enhancements. Enhancements are a type of additional charge that can be added on top of a criminal charge. And essentially what they do is just lengthen the possible sentence somebody might get if they're convicted at trial. Enhancements on a murder charge can lead to the death penalty. But in Contra Costa County, the DA has said they're not going to charge the death penalty. So the top sentence that could have resulted from that would have been life in prison without parole. So how does the Racial Justice Act, this new law in California, come in? in this murder case. One of the defense attorneys on this case is somebody who works for Contra Costa's alternate public defender, an attorney named Evan Kulik. I've been a public defender for a little over 15 years. And he said that he's seen tons of young men, both black and Latino, being charged with gang enhancements. Especially from Richmond and especially from Antioch, uh, being charged with gang allegations. So he decided he wanted to look into this and use this new California law. He asked the Contra Costa district attorney to provide data to him on their charging practices, specifically about gang enhancements. And what does this data show? Well, the records he got were from 2015 to 2022. He found that black men accused of gang-related murders were 44 percent more likely to be charged with special circumstance gang enhancements then defendants of other races who were accused of similar gang-related murders. 
So what does that mean then? What happens with this data and how does it change the case against these four men? So using this data, Evan goes to the court and he requests a racial justice hearing. He calls in a UC Irvine statistician to talk about what this data means and explain how they came to these numbers. And ultimately, the judge sits in decision for a while and decides to dismiss the gang enhancements. Interestingly, in this case, it doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of their sentencing risk or what they could be sentenced to. But it is an important win, and it sets a precedent for the state around gang enhancements. So lawyers are successful at using data to get these gang enhancements dropped using the Racial Justice Act. But we also know that's not the only time that this issue of racial bias comes up in in this murder case in Antioch. And I know it relates to a pretty egregious and I think well-known scandal at the Antioch Police Department. Tell us about that scandal and how it relates to this case. In the spring of last year, an FBI probe into behavior by Antioch and Pittsburgh police officers came across hundreds of text messages sent between members of both departments. Tonight, the police department in Antioch, California, is under intense scrutiny. Nine officers facing a federal lawsuit over alleged racist... Tonight we're learning nearly half of Antioch's police department is involved in the racist and homophobic... Those texts were racist and used homophobic language to talk about people that they're investigating. Finding between 2019 and 2022, officers texted messages like, we just ran down a monkey. Messages like this one, where an officer wrote, I'll bury that N in my fields. And yes, it was a hard R on purpose. And when these texts become public, there's a massive uproar in both of those cities. Tempers and emotions certainly boiled over during public comment. And what I saw inside really was a city reckoning with what residents have said are years of discriminatory treatment by police that even Mayor Lamar Thorpe said has persisted in Antioch for far too long. And I know one reason why these texts became such a big deal besides the fact that the language used in them is horrific and offensive, is that they're often discussing criminal cases, including this one, right? That's right. So two investigating officers in this case, Eric Rombaugh and Jonathan Adams, spoke explicitly about the defendants. Um, This was while they were on assignment, um, surveilling the four suspects at the time at a barbecue place in Concord. And they have an exchange over a period of 22 minutes And then they really specifically joked about violence towards the suspects. In one example, one officer writes about kicking Trent Allen, one of the young men, in the head and kicking his head like a football. In another example, they take photos of two of the young men who are injured in their hospital beds in various states of undress and send that to other officers. So how did people react when these texts became public, especially the loved ones of the four defendants? When this information becomes public, the Antioch Police Department puts about half of the department on leave. And as I said before, people were furious. And in particular, the family members of the four young men on trial. I just don't understand why these officers is not taking no accountability of what they did. At one court hearing, Sherelle Cobbs, the mother of Trent Allen, was particularly upset that the officers were somehow evading the subpoenas that had been served to them to come to court to testify about the text messages that they sent. 
I understand that. It's hard. Hard for me to sleep at night. Hard when I see officers afraid. Not knowing if if these officers got higher power. It's nothing going on. It's, 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 it's taking so long for something, for, for these officers to get arrested for doing a crime that they did. So what do lawyers for these four young men do with this information, with these explicitly racist texts that are now in the public? Yeah, so they turn around and fresh off their last racial justice hearing when they ask for a second racial justice hearing, this time saying that the police officers who investigated this case were tainted by racial bias, and the proof of that is these racist text messages. What the defense attorneys ask for in this second hearing is for the judge to throw out essentially any charge, any enhancement that might lead to a life without parole sentence. And that's something that they think is important because here they believe the entire police department is compromised by racial bias. The sheer number of officers on these texts showed that they were supporting each other, that they weren't afraid uh, to use that language amongst a large... And this is something that defense attorney Evan Kulik spoke about at a press conference outside the courtroom one afternoon. The tropes, the language harken back to horrific uh, history of racism, slavery, lynchings. So what does the judge decide to do? So ultimately, Judge David Goldstein hears the arguments from the defense. He hears from a series of experts who talk about racial bias. He sits with this for a number of months and ultimately decides to strike all enhancements that could lead to a life without parole sentence. That sounds like a lot. It is a lot. I mean, it takes what would otherwise be a life sentence and returns it to something that means that these young men could one day get out of prison if they're ultimately convicted at trial. Annalise, why do you think this case in Contra Costa County is one of the first examples of the Racial Justice Act being successfully used? Like, why here and why now, do you think? This is something I talked to the district attorney's office about. I think there are a number of sort of converging points that have come together to make this the most relevant uh, legal issue in Contra Costa County. And one person I spoke to, Simon O'Connell, who's a chief assistant DA, said that he thought it was sort of the perfect storm. In Contra Costa County, the DA was willing to provide data to the defense in that first Racial Justice Act claim. I think that stems from a desire uh, to be transparent. Which is pretty different than what a lot of counties do, where DAs have been incredibly resistant to requests for data by public defenders. And then on top of that, they had this massive scandal. This is one of the biggest police scandals to hit the Bay Area since the Riders case in Oakland in the early 2000s. So those things together set up this case for a really impactful series of Racial Justice Act claims. There's no greater crime than murder. And at the same time, we have expressed racial animus. And that's why it's getting so much attention as well. The state is watching. Coming up, how the Racial Justice Act could make bigger waves across California. Stay with us. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. What would it take then for this law to have a bigger impact in California beyond this one case in Antioch? As I mentioned before, like this new law is really just kind of getting up and running. We're still figuring out how courts are going to respond to it. And public defenders are still learning how to bring these types of cases. One thing they need in order to be successful is a lot of financial support. Getting experts to consult with you, getting them to come to hearing, that can cost a lot of money that public defenders often don't have. On top of that, a lot of people who are in prison who might be eligible to bring these types of claims, they need lawyers to begin with. And there aren't enough public defenders available to provide that appellate defense. That's something that California doesn't guarantee to people who are in prison, the access to a free attorney if you want to bring a challenge to a conviction that's already been established. There's also data. This type of statistical claim where you're pointing out implicit bias You have to have a lot of data for that. And a lot of places just don't even collect data. Counties have never been required in California to collect data on the race of the people they charge or the people they convict. And that's something that the state of California is trying to change. So if you're someone who wants to reform the criminal justice system, reduce or even get rid of mass incarceration, you need a lot of things to go right, essentially, for this law But are there ways this could go sideways? Like, what are the ways that the Racial Justice Act could be unsuccessful? Well, I mean, if those two things aren't provided, if data and funding are not provided, it's going to be pretty hard for this to really get any traction and be the sort of engine for decarceration that I think its proponents hope that it will be. Another thing that can go sideways here is that ultimately, we don't have another system of accountability right now. We just have the justice system, our courts that we're all familiar with and that this law is trying to make better and make more just for the residents of this state. But when we are able to poke holes in it and say, you know, the police are proving to have been racist, the charging practices are proving to have been racist, where does that leave us? How do we rebuild it and tear it down at the same time? Well, and where does it leave victims and their families, right? That's the one thing we haven't talked about yet. You know, what impact could this have on people who are hoping for the justice system, such as it is, to provide some kind of closure. And then it's discovered that the whole process might have been tainted by racial bias. Where does it leave them? Well, it leads them in a really hard spot. I spoke for a while with the mother of Arnold Marcel Hawkins, Brandy Griffin. And for her, watching these hearings was excruciating. She was just seeing what felt to her like justice slipping out of her hands. I don't give a shit about no racist text message. We all talk racist shit. The principle is he was murdered. She was very upset and spoke about this at a press conference one afternoon outside of the courthouse. He is dead, Marcel. They killed him. This is about the murder of my son. Say his name. I don't know Marcel Hawkins. Say his name. 
one thing that is hardest with hearing what Brandy has to say is that her perception in that moment is that maybe this would have played out differently if her son wasn't black, that maybe also there's this double-edged sword where racism is perhaps being perpetrated against both the people who are accused in this crime and the people who are the victims of it. So what questions does Brandy Griffin's predicament and this bigger case in Antioch bring up for you? You know, this is something that Simon O'Connell, the chief assistant to the DA, brought up, which is this balance that the justice system right now is trying to strike. So this is something that is a real reckoning for how we just view criminal justice and the meaning of justice and outcomes for all people. How do we untangle this long history of racism in our justice system? A history that has in many ways shaped the way our justice system works, while also providing accountability, doing what the justice system set out to do for people like Brandy Griffin who have lost loved ones. I think part of what's challenging here is that in California, the people who are most likely to be the victims of crime are also people of color, particularly low-income people. And we need to have something we can offer them that actually works. Well, Annalise, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was KQED reporter Annalise Finney. This conversation was cut down by Ellie Prickett Morgan and edited by me. Maria Eskinka scored this episode and added all the tape. Additional production support from Erica Cruz Guevara. Music courtesy of Audio Network and First Com Music. The Bay is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Jen Chan is our director of podcasts. Katie Sprenger is our podcast operations manager. Cesar Saldana is our podcast engagement producer. Maha Sanad is our podcast engagement intern. And KQED's chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alan Monticilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara. Thanks for listening. Talk to you Monday. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.